0: Ever wonder what it's like to sing at the Met? Or what it's like to sing in multiple languages on any given day? In today's Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast episode, we're going to learn all about the most well-rehearsed and collaborative group of singers at the Opera House, the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From La Fanchule del West to La Fille de Régiment, Mephistophele to Gottadammerung, a day in the life of a Metropolitan Opera chorister is wildly varied. In the span of a week, they could be playing French soldiers, Italian maids, or even cowboys in the American West. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, my co host, Naomi Baratera, gets a first hand account of what it's like to walk a mile in the shoes of the Met Opera Chorus.
1: To kick us off, to get us started, Uh, I think it would be great for us to meet our choristers and hear about their lives and the path that brought them to being a Met Opera chorister. So if it's all right, if we go in order to my right down the line, Uh, Angela, if you want to start telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and what was the path that brought you to being a Met Opera chorister?
2: Hi, good afternoon. My name is Angela DeVerger. I am from Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana. I studied at Louisiana State University for my undergrad and my master's degree, and I did have a wonderful experience with studying with Martina Arroyo my whole um, college career. I decided to go and get a PhD at Indiana University. She left LSU and went to Indiana University, and I went to school there. And um, I I had intended to be a history and theory professor, but I could sing too, thank God. And I found out how much money they made in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus, and that's when I decided to come and sing here. So (laughs) I left left Indiana University, and I went directly to the Met Chorus, and I've been singing in there since 1996.
3: So that's what brought me there.
1: Thank Thank you. Ross.
3: Hi, uh, so happy to be here today. My name is Ross Benalil. I'm uh, I'm originally from New Rochelle, New York, so not too far from here. Um, I've been in the Met Opera chorus for since two thousand thirteen, full time. Since two thousand ten, I was an extra chorister, meaning you only do you know a certain amount of shows a year. I went to the University of Michigan. I, I thought I was going to do musical theater or music technology or piano. I had all these different paths that I could follow, but. A voice teacher there said, oh, you have an operatic sound to your singing voice. That's not the typical musical theater voice. Maybe you'd want to pursue it. And then she uh, introduced me to some songs. I met a few friends there that were fans of Mario Lanza and I listened to some of his recordings. (laughs) And I said, oh, this opera stuff is pretty awesome. I like it, I'd like to sing this stuff. And I I remember coming home on a a vacation. I, I don't know if it was like a summer vacation and my dad, who his father heard Enrico Caruso live at the old old Met, um, he he started playing for me some opera stuff because he, he knew opera music, and he played for me this recording of uh, the second uh, of the end of the first act of Tosca, where the Scarpia is singing his Te Deum and the cannons are going off. I said, and we had just gotten this new car with a CD player, and I said. Oh, could I hear that again? You know, we're sitting in the basement of the garage, and it's like, "Just play that one more time. Play that one more time." And after like four or five times, I said, "That's it. This is what I want to do." So I, I completely switched from what I was doing, and in Michigan, and did opera, and little by little, I uh, went to AVA after that, Academy of Vocal Arts, did some solo singing, and and then wound up coming and joining the Met chorus. That, that was my trajectory.
4: Hello, my name is Danielle Walker. This is my fifth season in the chorus. I'm a soprano with Miss Deverger. She's my neighbor in the dressing room. (laughs) Um, I am from Virginia. That's where I went to high school. I started singing opera in high school at, and it's called the Governor's School for the Arts. And I had a wonderful teacher down there, and he just inspired the love of opera in me. And then I decided to make that my career. Then I went to my undergrad and graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, the conservatory there. After that, I went to the Los Angeles Opera Young Artist Program with Maestro Domingo. And after two years in Los Angeles, I um, signed with my management. They said, move to New York. This is the only way to do it. So I came here with $4,000 and a dream. (laughs) And... Uh, one month to find a place to live and a job. So I started waiting tables at Olive Garden in Times Square. And (laughs) I got hired to sing at Sarasota Opera. And every season, I would come back um, and do another performance down there. And all was well. I was um, doing solo career for about four or five years here. And then I had a baby. And I said, you know, this traveling is too much. I traveled my entire life being a military brat. And I was ready to settle, and I walked up to my manager and said, I would like to be in the chorus at the Metropolitan Opera. He said, you can't just be in the chorus. (laughs) And I said, well, when somebody retires or passes away, I would like to have an audition. (laughs) And two weeks later, the chorus administrator called my manager and said, do you have anybody who would like to be in the chorus? We have someone who's retiring at the last minute. And he said, well... Yes, and she would like to come and audition, so I auditioned, and here I am.
2: <laughs> and I'm happy. <laughs> Me too.
1: <laughs> all right. So speaking of the audition, uh, we were chatting beforehand as we were preparing for this afternoon about how the audition process has changed over time, and I think all three of you have had a little bit of a different audition experience. So. Can you tell us about what your audition was like, what you remember from it, and uh, what you sang, and and kind of the process that you went through to get into the chorus in the first place?
2: Well, I'm the old-timer. So I came um, in the spring of 1996. I was singing, believe it or not, and um, we had a wonderful opera program at Indiana University. So I was singing in uh, Julieta in Tales of Hoffman, and... Miss Arroyo said, Angela, you have to go for, if you want to sing in the chorus in the Met, you have to go for it. They have this thing called a cattle call. So back in the day, there were thousands of people who just lined up. If you had an Agma card, you just line up and audition for days on end. It was a week's process. So I came in the middle of that week and I auditioned. I sang um, Balatella from Pagliacci. And then they asked me for the German piece from Dear Fry So I sang that too, which was quite nice. <laughs> um, so then I had a call back. I had given them two phone numbers for uh, to reach me. Well, the course master had called me, but I didn't even get to come back for my callback. But he contacted someone to say, Mr. Verger, Mr., Callback. I was already back at Indiana University. They offered me a contract anyway. I was just very lucky. But the day when I... Came for the audition. There were hundreds of people. The line was down the street. That's the way it was done back in the old days. Nowadays we have this newfangled business where you just send in the CD or a live stream, whatever, and then you get called in. But when I auditioned, it was, you know, the old way where you waited for hours, um, and then you had to wait for a callback. So it was—it's very interesting. And and I was lucky. I mean, when I tell
3: you I won the lottery. I won the lottery, so mm-hmm. I'm very
1: happy for that. So, a little bit about the the new way.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, there's no cattle call. I, at, <laughs> at a certain point, when I don't know when when did you say that ended, or when
2: as soon as Maestro Palumbo did one,
3: he did one of those. So it was like 2005 or six. I or don't something. remember when he came. All right. Well, I, I I did my first audition for the Met chorus in 2010, I think, and that was for the extra chorus. And I was so lucky because I sang and I auditioned. Uh, I um, I think I sang Questo Amor from Edgar, and I'm a baritone, and uh, angelo, and Maestro Palumbo offered me uh, a contract, which was the, uh, I think, Don Carlo at the Met, and the Japan tour, which we haven't done for a while, but the last Japan tour was, I think, 2010 or 11. 2011, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, that's amazing. So that was my first experience with the Met, was doing Don Carlo (laughs) here with, I think, Ferruccio Forlaneto, which was amazing, which I remember (laughs) the stagehands watching him in the wings that's how you know somebody's good because Roberto Olanya was there and he was like oh yeah he's good right and I'm like <laughs> yeah he's good and then this, there's some stagehands behind us watching too so that was my first uh, experience and then going over to Japan to do the tour was amazing and then I kept doing extra chorus shows uh, every, for a couple of years um, uh, like four or five a season and then in 2013 I auditioned for full time and I was sick at the time it was, uh, you know, these things happened. And Steve Lozito who was our uh, like our conduit, the chorus uh, administrator. administrator, such a nice guy. And I was like, what do you think I should do? Should I come in and sing? I'm so nervous. Should I just reschedule? And he was like, I, I think if you just go, he'll understand that you're not feeling well. And give it a shot. And I sang for uh, Maestro Palumbo. Then I had a meeting with him in his room, like a couple days later. I was like, oh, no, I bombed. he he's This is all over. He goes... Um, were you okay? Were you feeling well? Uh, I just want to know about your audition because you don't normally sound like that. And he's like, well, I I wasn't. I was a little under the weather. He goes, okay. Um, He goes, and you still want to be a part of the chorus? And I said, yes, I do. He's like, okay. And that was the end of it. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what's going to happen now? (laughs) And then like a couple of days later, I I got the uh, word or however long later and I was like, oh, that's it. So that was my... uh, audition experience?
4: Well, I, I sort of started mine. Um, so I received the phone call from my manager that Steve Lacido had contacted him looking for someone, but it was only for, um, for the one year because they were going to find someone permanently. And he explained to them that I would like to be here permanently. So they sent an email to me. It was such, I mean, I feel like it was the best audition of my life. Um, they sent me an email and said, what are your five arias that you would like to sing? Uh, I sent that back. They said, these are the two we would like to hear. That never happens. It never happens. You go in and you maybe get to choose your first aria. And then they choose from the remaining four, which can make or break your entire audition. Um, but they let me know. They let me choose what I wanted to sing first. That way I knew what was coming next. <laughs> I started with, um, bel sogno." And then he asked for Judy from Carmen, and um, it, it was just wonderful. They let me stand in the room for 30 minutes and test the acoustics. I mean, it, it was a dream come true, and I really felt like it was divine intervention for my personal audition. And not 30 minutes after the audition, I received a phone call. I was on the train on my way to my shift at Olive Garden. <laughs> <laughs> it was my show pull-up I was like yeah it's gonna come off it's gonna and then I went and worked my shift and I continued working my shift because we were in negotiations um contract negotiations so it wasn't even sure that anybody was gonna have a job once the season started that year so he said yeah keep waiting tables you can miss a couple rehearsals and then as soon as we were in and we said yeah we're we're gonna do this I was like bye Olive Garden And, (laughs) and then I started singing It was it's It was amazing, but I don't think anybody else's audition was like that.
1: (laughs) So now that you're in the chorus, Mm -hmm. uh, if we take like a a long view, what does a year in the life of the chorister look like in terms of kind of broad chunks of time? So when do rehearsals happen? What are the most intense periods of the year? And when do you get to take time off? We
2: begin in, okay, back in the day, (laughs) we used to begin... Three weeks, and then we had three weeks on stage. There was only six weeks of preseason. But we switched chorus masters, and now we come back in July. And at the end of July, I believe, and we rehearse I mean, we rehearse probably 27 hours in a week for two months, for two full months. Ross, you could probably talk more about what the men do because the men's schedule is different from the ladies' right. schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, we have full chorus operas with all of us. Then we have small chorus operas, like Don Giovanni, only takes a couple of us. Turandot takes a whole bunch and, and the rest extras. of the village. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Ross, you could probably talk more about what the what yeah. the guys do.
3: Well, it's you know, just because of how operas were written, there are more operas that have male chorus or just have male just men in general in, in the chorus. So um the men have a an even busier schedule uh than the women, but uh you know, we all start around the same time and um I, I mean, yeah, I mean, other than that it's it's similar, but we we the men definitely are there more often. We're there I I don't know how else to say.
2: I can say that we do at least 200, between 180 to 220 a season but that doesn't take into account all of the rehearsing that we do because we can do seven performances in a week but we can also have five performances. There are two shows on Saturday so there can be five performances. When I first came to work in the Met, we would do rehearsal during the day from 10.30 until like 2, two o'clock and then we would come for the 8 o'clock performance at night. Well, the show The schedule has shifted. We rarely did what we call gap rehearsals, which are, if we finish the stage, we can go into the list hall and work till four or five o'clock, and then the show at 7.30. We do more of those gap rehearsals in between. So the days can really go long. It's a brutal schedule. And it has been a brutal schedule, I guess, for the last 10 years, um, Whereas when I first arrived, we would do like sixteen balloons, twenty of this, twenty of that, and so sometimes a lot of rigolettos, which meant the ladies had a night off. The guys were always working, um, so it used to be really top heavy for the guys and lighter for the ladies. Now it's it's you know it's more even since we are doing so many new operas um, that require probably we have eighty people in the chorus, so we have. I think 42 men and 38 ladies is what we have. Um, in that, you can use 30 ladies at some times and six people will be off for that show. Um, and with the men, you, they do the same. But then when we have operas like Turandot, everybody works. When we have operas like Bohem, everybody works. When you have operas like Tosca, everybody works. But Giovanni, just a small group of Men, small group of ladies. So it varies um, from season to season, which means that you never make the same amount of money every year. (laughs) Like we're doing the ring cycle now, so a lot of us have a lot of time off, which is really great. We get our salary, but there's no what you call overtime because a lot of that stuff is just a lot of extra work that is absolutely necessary. Um, to do the job, but you know, we do, how many operas do we do? 27, 24, 24 a year or now? Like when I first arrived, we did, you know, 17 or 18 operas, but we did a lot of performances of a mainstay, but now we, you know, we've incorporated a lot of new um, operas, and so therefore we have much more work to do, I think.
4: And we also, uh, Angela was saying we come back at the end of July, but we have the summers off. So that's a bonus because we really work so hard during the season. We're here at 10 AM. We work until four and we have maybe three hours off and we're right back here at seven 30 to get into makeup and costumes until midnight. So it's from 10 till midnight every day with a little dinner break. Um, and that goes from, the end of September until yeah. basically Mother's Day, yeah. the first or second weekend of May.
2: We don't do met in the parks anymore, which also has affected the schedule. Um, I used to finish second week of May, and then I'd be off for two weeks, and then we did three weeks of the parks. We don't have the parks anymore, so we have that. We get to have that time off, which makes us, uh, which makes us eligible to come back earlier than we used to. And that's why the schedule is so different. I mean, my career has changed. It changes from year to year. That's what makes doing this work exciting for me. Um, I'm a mother. I've had three children since uh, my career began. And so it's nice to have the summers off, that time. I can always depend on those weeks. We know exactly when it's going to be. So that helps um, with the resting period. But it's you know it's still quite a busy job.
3: Yeah, and we really never know from one season to the next what our workload's going to be. Uh, so obviously, as Angela was saying, financially. But also, uh, if they decide that they want to do uh, a chorus-heavy season, they can do that. Then you can do your your um, any of these operas that don't have chorus in them. And it's like, well, that's something we're not going to be in. Um, it really depends how they decide they want to cast the season. I guess whatever celebrities are coming in, whatever productions they want to do, that really plays into our, our, schedule. our workload. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So then in regards to rehearsal, there is this preseason period, but then you're also rehearsing during the season, during the day. So if there's operas that come up on a season, you know, they're coming up, you know, at the end of May, you know, what's coming up in the next season. If there's operas that you've never sung before that you're unfamiliar with or that are, you know, making their world premieres, when do each of you learn your notes and learn the music? Does that happen on your own time or does it happen in, in rehearsal periods? Uh, I mean, we have paid rehearsals. Yeah. I mean, we come having mm-hmm. never seen the score and we learn it in List Hall. Yeah. And so you learn it in List Hall, then mm-hmm. how long does it take you? And what are some of your strategies for memorizing these things?
2: Note cards. Yes. We have note Thank cards. God and note and cards. everybody has their system of doing things. I'm really nerdy. <laughs> I still write the little black notes and with the dots. And then Maestro Palumbo is always giving notes. And the wonderful thing about him is when you go in for the opera, you get the synopsis of the opera. You get what we call the International Phonetic Alphabet Every word that is in every language, he puts the translation and he puts what it's supposed to sound like, so you get those notes. And, um, what else do we get from him? Usually, uh, that was it, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, but, but that page that is your little Bible, so it's called I, the
4: text
0: sheet. <laughs>
2: yeah. We, we their text, their diction sheets. So, I have a little file of all of the operas with my diction notes in there. If you ha- ever have any problems, you can you can transfer what you know from the score down to a note card, but you still have that paper to work off of, which is really great when we start doing staging rehearsals down in C-level, because we do start C-level first. Then we go to the main stage after everything is all worked out down on sea level. But we, we always have a prompter also, so that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like to know, back in the old days, you had to know everything cold. There was no note anything. By the time you got to sea level, you had to know it all. We weren't allowed to bring cards, and but Maestro Palumbo has no problem with us taking cheat sheets. Um, because there's a lot of material and we do it's it's a different
3: and it's more now it's yeah it's so more much more
2: than what it was when I first arrived but what by the time you have about five years if you don't have any new operas to learn you know everything I had to learn one thing I think this year but I have 20 years of service <laughs> 20 years of full-time service so the new people are the ones who I feel sorry for, especially when you come in doing a show like that one with all the red the Russian one with all the red flowers uh, no, Prince no no Igor Prince Igor uh, yeah. that was a booger bear yeah. I mean I'm an old timer let me tell you what yeah it was really quite something learning that music. Mm-hmm. I did start at a time where we did Moses and Aaron, and I had to come in all the preseason to do Moses and Aaron, but the other chorus master worked totally differently from the way this Chorus Master works. And when I went into Liszt Hall, that's where I learned my music, cold. I didn't have to do any outside study. I didn't need cheat sheets. I didn't do anything because you had to learn the notes and that was the job. Now it's totally different. Um, we, there's, a, there's a lot more involved um, with musicality and this and that and the other. Well, back in the old days where you just learned the notes and did what my, whatever the maestro said in the pit. Um, now it's different. And I think that that is what has changed in the sound of the Met chorus because we really do work on vocal technique when we're in rehearsal now, whereas back in the old days we really didn't work on vocal technique, but we do now. So that's those are two different things um, that you know have been implemented since we have have the new chorus master.
1: Mm-hmm. Now with with note cards, which you mentioned, and we were talking about this earlier. Is it common to have little hidden places where note cards or cheat sheets go when you're actually on stage performing? Or That's frowned it's upon. It's frowned upon, but
4: I will say that I've opened a purse from another production that came from ENO, and I found somebody's note card in my purse. <laughs> and I used it. I said, okay. <laughs> I didn't throw it away. I said, yeah, this is a hard one. Okay, that's what we're doing.
3: <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember. There was a principal in the show, I don't know how oh, many, yeah. who wrote some... Oh, w- it was who, not- oh, oh, oh. I'm not <inaudible> saying who it was. I'm not but, either, somebody but she wrote held it
1: up for the <laughs> riddles.
3: The principal. But I mean, it's that's a, a lot, lot to do. So. Those
2: riddles are hard to remember. You can get lost in the riddles. I mean, I've done hundreds of Turandots with a few, probably 10 or 12 Turandots, and I've seen them get lost in the in the riddles it's-
4: and because there are so many more productions right. the rehearsal time is this long yeah. for these people that have never done it they get a week on stage on the Dot set that I'm sure you've all seen <laughs> it, I mean it's just it's impossible to move around on that and in her costume and just mm-hmm. even just to get used to the space um and then remember everything yeah. directionally speaking and with your
1: text and with Everything. It's just, it's a lot to
4: remember. remember.
1: So in terms of moving around on the set, since that's very complicated, right? Mm -hmm. When in the season or rehearsal process do you start learning when to move and where to move? And when is the first time that you as a chorister might set foot on the actual physical scenery?
2: I'm doing Goethe Demmerung for the first time in my career. We had rehearsal the other day on those Mm. things. And so I made it to the stage and there was this huge gap. You were near me. This huge oh, yeah. gap. I call those things piano. piano. Whatever. Yeah. The machine. Because I love Ryan Gold and I always come to see Ryan Gold with those boom boom. Every time I see him that's what I think of. So I it was the first time I had been on this set. And um that one's a little treacherous. I, I can say that. Um, but I'll have some more time next week to get used to it. But sometimes, like when we did, uh, they weren't in Tan Dun's, uh, The First Last Emperor, Emperor Last First One, whatever. Yeah. Um, that one was a very <laughs> difficult, it was like risers, but we were in these terracotta costumes where we had to do all of this stuff. I mean, it was really quite something. And you just have to get used to... Uh, being in the set and sometimes even after the rehearsal period, you're still not used to it, depending on how they put it together. When the stage hands have such a short amount of period of time, like Turandot, mm-hmm. um, you can walk in a hole. Uh, so you just have to be,
4: you have to I be have careful. I have something yeah. very specific to add to this, this <laughs> about safety yeah. and um, the set being quite treacherous. Um, we were doing this opera called La Donna del Lago, my first season, and we, we're rehearsing in February when we were down on sea level for about a week. That's about how much time we get to learn all of our staging. And then we move it up to the stage the week before it goes up, it opens. So I'd say two weeks to learn all of our blocking. And um, when it's a new production, maybe a little bit more time, but not much. And we were given an instruction to run off stage because everybody was coming. The, the we were being we were under attack. Here come the horns! Everybody's coming. So I ran off stage and I ran through the wing that we were instructed on sea level not to run through. But then we were when we got to stage, they said it was okay. We could go through that wing. It looked like rocks. It was styrofoam, and I sprained both of my ankles. And I was out for the entire season. Terrible. So you really need to be careful yeah. getting to know where you are on the set and what the set is made of and it's your job personally to do that because nobody i mean we have safety delegates and after i cracked both of my ankles nobody was allowed to go out of that wing anymore um but you really do have to be so careful and so focused at all times on the set
2: i've been very lucky very lucky i have never had a stage injury um, I've had to go off the stage from being dizzy, but I've never had an injury on stage um, because back in the old days, we always had a lot of flat things with a lot of stuff sticking off. If you even if you could see what Tito and Idomeneo looked like, you have to be so mm-hmm. so careful. So that was one of the main things that they stressed all the time stage safety and we wouldn't be able to go out on stage until the stage hands have finished now it's much more dangerous because they're still knocking stuff together <laughs> when we're coming in yeah. um so you just being safe on stage is truly the 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 a huge part of the job um because you have to be safe back mm-hmm. the uh,
3: prince igor said was the, the like it was in like a uh, disarray at the end there's all this destruction and oh yeah the, i just remember well, that so all the ground, instead of having, like, actual things that they put out there that would indicate it, the, the floor itself was, it was like a rubber floor where all of these bits were coming out of it. So normally, you'd, I, I walked out there, it's like, oh, let me kick some of these this debris, but it was stuck to the set, so you, it wasn't really, and so now you're trying to maneuver around debris, but it's like rubber carpet debris, like, it just made no sense. It. You really have to just be careful. And also, you know, that gets to the whole idea of the rakes, the whole mm-hmm. idea of footwear. A lot of times um and like I go to the gym, but I, there have been times when I've been on on a rake stage where my knees or my legs are really at the end of the day, back. the hips. So mm-hmm. a lot of times when there's a severe rake, you'll if you're ever in a rehearsal and you see people standing facing the other direction, not facing out, it's not because they want to be rude, but it's because they're just uh trying to relieve some of that pressure. Uh, and, you know, we're always standing, so yeah. you have to be careful. Just
1: just to clarify a few terms, so for those of you who have not been on a backstage tour of the Met, which I highly recommend, sea <laughs> um, level is actually many floors below ground. It's like the basement level of the mm-hmm. Met, and there's a lot of rehearsal rooms there. Mm-hmm. There's also storage on sea level for mm-hmm. the pieces of scenery, but when, when people are rehearsing, whether it's principals, the chorus... Uh, There are rehearsal rooms, the orchestra, on sea level, so that's where a lot of the rehearsals happen. And some of those rehearsal rooms, not all of them, but some of them are the same dimensions as parts of the stage. Mm -hmm. So that even if the scenery is not with you, you can get a feel for how much time it takes you to walk from place to place, that type of thing. And then a rake is on a stage is an angle, right? It's just mm-hmm. when the scenery like is on a sharp angle <laughs> yes. and the choristers have to walk on those sharp angles and sing while walking. In heels. <laughs> in heels. <Yeah. laughs> so do you, do you have special footwear or t- or tricks in order to That's make it safer?
2: When I arrived in New York, I wore a size eight. I now wear ten and a half. So I put some miles on these uh, puppies. <laughs> we call them my hooves. Um, But it can be, it's a lot of work walking miles and miles and miles. And now you have these little things. My phone can dictate how many miles I walked. I mean, you know, you wear the little Fitbit thingy. And you see the miles and miles you walk you reach in that all your theater.
1: goals.
4: <laughs> all your fitness goals are reached yeah. in this job I mean, you, without you, going you, to the gym.
2: You never realize <laughs> when you're doing this work how much you walk. Yeah. And we have a lot of stairs to climb. I mean, it's 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 really quite something. Yeah. I love it. I have
4: to say, I do. But we do. They assign our shoes per. Oh, they costume. assign your. We shoes. We have okay. our specific show yeah. shoes, and they're based. Um, on the style and period of the show, but also to your personal needs. If you have a foot problem yeah. or a knee problem, you can get a note from your doctor so you don't have to be in the higher heels or the period shoe. Um, and usually a black flat character shoe <laughs> will serve for any show that we're doing. Well, or I the have tan a, for the spring look.
2: I have a funny <laughs> story about the shoes. I had this one pair of shoes that I refused to give up. And... They kept resoling them, recoloring them, resoling them, and recover cup. Well, it was, you know, it was the shape of my foot, and I'm comfortable on stage. I'm safe in those shoes, so I don't like to change shoes. And finally, the head of the department, which was Leslie, she said, "Angela, we have to take those shoes. I had had them for 13 seasons. Wow. So they took those shoes away from me, and they gave me these. <laughs> they gave me a couple of these, because I have to have flats." I'm not all young and spry like they are. I'm an old lady. (laughs) So I need to, you know, I have to wear flat shoes because it's hard.
1: What about the men? Do you get any kind of special shoes? Because sometimes, depending on the performance, you might be wearing boots. You might be wearing shiny shoes with a tux look.
3: Yeah, it it really depends. We could have just normal shoes. We could have uh, if it's like two boys, like we all had to wear sneakers for that. Uh, if it's a yeah, if it's a soldier thing, and then you can have the boots that actually come up this high because they, they they, I never understand why they use the real thing, why they don't use something that's kind of like the real thing because it would be so much easier for everybody. But I think people in the audience would still think it's the real thing. So we're wearing these real like horse riding boots where. They come up over here, and you actually your dresser needs to help you get it on, or you have two different. I remember um, these two little hooks, and they would hook in the side, and you pull it up, and then like walking navigating the stage and getting up and down the stairs in the mm-hmm. costume. It's it can be treacherous.
2: I don't know if, if any of you ever saw the old magic flute when we used to wear the blue with the little genie shoes. Well, they made. Every genie shoe in the Metropolitan Opera back in the old days, we had a whole shop where they used to make all of our stuff. So Lohengrin, they made all of our shoes. Now we have other people, we have other vendors who come in, like from Daskevant, they're from Dusseldorf, Germany. They build a lot of our costumes that we wear now. <laughs> we, we do a lot of outside work, I mean, a lot, a lot of outside vendors now. So
1: speaking of the costumes, when do you get fitted for costumes and... And also, what is your process before a show to get into your costume and makeup look? Whatever, I'm I'm going to go first because
3: I'm just going to assume that it's a little bit more involved. I'm just going <laughs> to assume. I'm just going to go there because for the men, depending on what it is, most of the time there's no. Uh, it really depends on the show. Sometimes they're difficult, but most of the time it's it's not too bad. Some some costumers like to add levels of things, so you have a shirt with a vest with a this with a that. And so that's, that can get a little annoying. But uh, um, it, it's not too crazy. You know, we're not like, you know, when the women are wearing dresses, like we're wearing tuxedos. I think the men in general have a little easier go of it. Um, so that's the men.
2: Well, yeah. I've been very lucky that, to have the same dresser my entire career because I refused to move away from my dressing table. Her name is Martine Ogawa, and she has put me in every costume you know, for my whole career. I'm I'm very lucky in that regard, um, because they we're switching a lot of people, but Martine hasn't left our aisle, thank God. And I am the first person, because I'm an old timer, when I go in, Danielle can tell you, I'm the first person in the costume, and I will sit there for 30 minutes in the costume, because I wanna be in the costume and go to the stage. Um, I'm not fussy, just put it on me, it's the job. I'm gonna wear another one tomorrow. Um, there are some people who are very fussy about theirs. I'm not. Just put the thing on me. I'm going to go out and do the work, and and that's how I feel about it.
4: <laughs> we um sometimes we'll we'll have a fitting for next season, uh, right now. Yeah, I've done that. We <laughs> do that, but I mean, I'm a woman, and there are a few women in here. We fluctuate. So they put a couple <laughs> hooks on the skirt. So there's the big hook, the medium hook, in our dresser. She's so funny. She's this very tiny French woman, and she says, "Oh." We're on the big hook. (laughs) 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 She's like, or some. She'll celebrate. She said, "Oh, we're on the last hook today."
2: (laughs) And imagine me. You all don't know when I came to the Met. I weighed like hundred and eighty pounds. I'm not going to say what I weigh now.
4: So, Martine has been my dresser
2: throughout the years. I have no feelings. <laughs> None no, whatsoever. You,
4: you have a very personal relationship yeah. with your dresser. Right. And she knew that Angela was pregnant before Angela knew she was pregnant. She sure did. <laughs> and it's that's another interesting thing. Yeah, because I was similar. pregnant three seasons ago. And they have to build the costume for you and for the baby too. Yeah. And it's it's just quite the, the undertaking. It was really quite
2: something that she knew I was pregnant before I was. Mm-hmm. But that's how well she knows me. So she's like a second mom to me. Yeah. And I adore her.
3: Yeah, these dressers, I mean... My dresser, Mikey, uh, I mean, I've been with him since for like six or seven years. And Nick, like, you really develop a rapport. Yeah. They Like if a certain show, you know that you only need 15 minutes to get ready. We always have a half an hour call time, most of the time for our costumes, depending. But some shows, I mean, if it's like a suit or something like that, it doesn't take a half an hour to put it on. Uh, so if you know if it's 20 minutes before or 15 minutes before, maybe you could still put it on. And you have this rapport with these. Uh, costume people and they say, okay, well, we know how you do it. And then you get a new person in there, like one night, and they're eager and they say, okay, you know, don't you have to get in your costume? And if after a long day of rehearsals, being on stage, and trying to learn the music, you kind of want to just have that thing work. And so that can get a little frustrating. So it can we throw really off do your
1: entire
4: routine. And then, then the show, then that
3: night, then maybe you forget something because now you're thrown off. So it, it's really important. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. What about? What about stage makeup? Do you get help doing it? Do you have to do your own? And what if it's super complicated?
4: Sometimes I love makeup <laughs> so much. They give us a sheet on the wall, and they say, make your face look like this. And
2: she can do it.
4: And then some of my colleagues will say, can you come help me with my smoky eye? And I'm like, yes, I'll help everybody with the smoky eye. And it's and I
2: avoid it at all costs, but nobody knows what I go through daily.
4: Oh, Angela, you could
2: put on some makeup.
4: She'll, she'll just look at me, and she said, I'm not going to put makeup on today, and I'll go... Okay, maybe I'll put a
2: lip. (laughs) I'll sneak out of the room and the other day we got on stage and I went, Danielle, I'm not wearing makeup. And our colleagues (laughs) who were standing around, they knew exactly. Because I'm gonna tell you all something. I really do not like to wear makeup Mm -hmm. at all. I say my my children think it's funny. I don't wear jewelry. I say they pay me to wear jewelry. Mm -hmm. So why I'm gonna wear it when they pay me to wear it. I don't wear makeup outside because they pay me to wear makeup. So In the summertime, nobody gets anything on this face. And I, you know, (laughs) my skin has remained all right Uh all these years because I put dove soap on my face and I don't wear makeup
1: because I don't like it. But I have to wear
2: it. I have on some today.
1: (laughs) So you do have to do your own, even if it's pretty complicated and if it's not, you know, just a... We have a staff.
2: We have a staff. They'll come, like, when we have to wear our yellow tee for... um, Magic the Magic notes. Flute, um, they come in and they check our tees. And then there there was some complicated makeup um, and a couple where we, we had to be green or something. Um, and they'll come in. But they're always walking around. Like the hair people come and put in our little doogle daggles if we have to have them in our wigs and stuff. So we have staff always walking around from the other departments. helping.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: us. So in terms of sometimes certain members of the chorus might get little solo parts or there are parts where like one – there are minor characters that might sing a, a line on their own. How is that cast? Do you as Met Chorusers get the opportunity to sing those roles, and how are those decisions made?
2: All right. Well. Back in the old days, uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, we would have a week of auditions where we, the um, artistic department decides whether or not uh, who gets small chorus roles. Um, if it's a new production, sometimes they'll take the small course roles and gives give them to the young artists. Um, but historically, when I first came, there was a list of all the solo parts that actually came in the contract. You got the bylaws and everything for the contract, and those were all the roles that were available. And we could go in and sing a, a regular audition, like an aria, and then they would cast you in whatever. Was, well. We don't do that anymore. You go in and you sing the one little line, and whoever sings it the best gets the part. That's
3: the way it's done now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which, I mean, uh, I'm actually singing uh, tonight the Commissioner in Traviata, oh, you so are? that's mm-hmm. that's like uh, it feels like you're you know you're singing a solo anywhere. Like if I was doing like Figaro or Schaunard as a soloist back in the day, because now I'm thinking today, oh well, I have these. 15 or 16 notes to sing <laughs> but I have to sing these 15 or 16 notes really well because I'm presenting myself as a soloist on the Metropolitan Opera stage. I mean, I think that when I'm in the chorus too, but you have that awareness that you're out there all by yourself and and uh so yeah, it it's 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 awesome that we have these opportunities and um but it it's definitely it's for me a little a level of stress but also a level of like a challenge and it mm-hmm. keeps me uh you know, pushing myself.
2: I did Anchela, I think, 33 times Once I, when I checked the archives. So I did Anchela in Turandot a lot um, when I first came. Um, when we used to have Met in the Parks, we could do the Little uh, Shepherd Boy solo. So I did that solo, which was really great. And then I had a solo in the nose when we premiered that opera. And I had a solo in, I don't know if any of you all saw this production, but Sly? <laughs> Do you remember Sly? (laughs) 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 Marta Domingo came and directed that for us. Um, So that was a really good experience. Mr. Domingo was Sly. And um, Miss Culegina was was the star. I think she had a funny name. It wasn't Minnie. It was something like that. But um, that was a great production. It was new. And it was like a Western or whatever. But um, we had solos. And there were a lot of solos in that for us. And there were a lot of solos in something else for us. Um, so, you know, we, we, we get our, a lot of solos that oh, the guys get more solos than the ladies, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So how do you, with this crazy schedule, how do you kind of balance your work and not work time? And, and what does that look like? How much time do you actually get off in a typical week?
4: Sunday. Well, we get Sunday
1: at least off.
4: Well, now we do. Yeah. Now, until oh, next we're going to start doing Sundays. Sundays. <laughs> but they'll give us the next day completely off when we start working Sundays. Um, personally, I live pretty far away. I live um, in Queens, deep in Queens. And um, it, I don't have enough time to go home during the day. And it's hard with the two children. But um, their grandmother watches them. And it's almost an extension of you know mom, that kind of love that they receive. And thank God for FaceTime. Because I can call and I can help him with his homework every day on video chats. Ask Angela, I'm always taking funny pictures and talking to my kids on the phone in the dressing room because that's how you get in the time. And also I'm very thankful that we have the summers off because that's when you can really make up for the fact that you're not home that much throughout the year. But this season has been better for that because of the ring cycle, we've been home more. So I've kind of felt like a normal person. The past three weeks, I've only had shows, not a single rehearsal, and, um, and only two or three shows per week. So it's almost like the summer right now for me. I just get to come and sing a show and have three days off and come sing another show, have five days off, and it's been great. But um, it just depends on the season when we have the free time.
2: Yeah, I, um, I have three children. Twins who are 14 and a baby that's almost 12. Well, she's not a baby, but she's my baby. (laughs) And um, when I live in right above Hoboken in New Jersey, so if there's no traffic door-to-door, it's 13 minutes on my broom to get to my home. (laughs) So I used to go home after rehearsal to New Jersey every day uh, when they were little children. Because at that time, the schedule had changed... And I think I had the twins in 2005, and that's when they implemented all of this new stuff. Um, I mean, we were working quite a lot. Um, Then I had another baby in 2007, and we were still working a very brutal schedule, but I was able to go home. Um, I had one nanny there for 11 years who was really, really great. Um, I have two autistic children, so they needed a certain level of care um, and this lady, I didn't like having, you know, babysitters in and out. So I had the one lady who cared for them. Well, now they're really, they've really <laughs> done well. And um, now I just have, I can have a babysitter. They're 14 now. They're like grown people. They're taller than I am. And the, the youngest one, um, if if I had three average children, they could stay at home on their own. But now, because I have the handicapped children, I always have to have a babysitter there. Um, and I have someone new who also has her own special needs children, so it's worked out quite nicely for me. Um, I don't have to go home in between anymore. We do have the FaceTime. The boy just learned how to use the phone, and believe (laughs) she knows, he did, he just learned. I gave him a phone like a week and a half ago, and he learned how to use it, and he calls, when are you coming home, Mom? You know, that's (laughs) always the question. Um, But, you know, we do get the the time off in the summer, which is just, I mean, it's like being a teacher, and that's Mm -hmm. been the I can say the most wonderful thing um, after having children that we have, um, the ability to be at home for 13 weeks, 11 or 13 weeks, whatever it is, every year.
3: Yeah, You can really hear how different it is for every person. I mean, uh, they both have children. I don't. I'm married. Me and my wife, we live in Brooklyn, so I actually... Try to find time during the day to to come home if I can, and so there'll be times we'll have a rehearsal in the morning, go back to Brooklyn, maybe I'll work out, maybe we'll have dinner together, I'll come in do a show, go back, come back in the next day. It 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 really depends, and then, you know, you know if it's like three and a half hours, I know that I can I can get home. If it's any less than that, it's like don't bother, just stay in. Yeah. Um, and you know it's tough because I think ideally everyone who has a family or you know, would love, or anybody would love to live close to the job that they work at. And If you live in New Jersey or if you live out in Queens or maybe other parts, you can't go home. It's just not feasible. So you have to find ways to make that uh, work for your specific situation.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. I know that everyone probably has a lot of questions. I'm going to kind of do a sweep across this way, then I'll go back like this. So I will repeat the question. I promise. So the question is, which are the Mm. operas that each of you like to or enjoy singing the most? So far, I've really loved singing Aida.
3: I was going to say Aida. too. Yeah,
4: it's just, I mean, you get to just really let it rip. Oh, that's another thing as a soprano in this regime. Um, We're encouraged not to sing as loud as possible, but to sing on the bloom and a more refined sound. But sometimes it can feel restrictive. But... Like you can't really sing fully supported and full throated like a like a real opera singer and dig into that music. And then in Aida, you get to sing, and they want <laughs> as much sound as possible, so yeah. you just get to let it rip. And I feel so free singing Aida. I love Aida.
2: I, I my favorite favorite things to sing in the Met. My I think my all time favorite really has been the Satyagraha. My. In the top five, always the Domineo and <laughs> La Clemenza Di Tito because it's just what I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the three the three queens. Uh, I mean, I love Roberto, Roberto Devereux. Devereux. Bolena, I love Stuarda. Anna Bolena and, and Maria Stuarda. Stuarda. Maria Stuarda. I, that that's the kind of music that I like. Um, and I like to make the beautiful lines. I like bel canto, and I love Mozart.
1: I like the Verdi and the Puccini man. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So, how is it allocated when there's certain operas where not everybody needs to sing? There's some that require every last person, and you're not always singing every single night.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean they. I know they try to balance it out. I was going to say traditionally
2: it's um, been a balance thing because we're all financial sort of thing. We're all opera choristers there, and so traditionally it's been. the chorus master goes through with the matrix and because we, we all have the job and everybody's capable of doing everything. Mm -hmm. So what they usually do is use the matrix and cast this way and this way and this way and the other way. Um, it, It, he really does try to find a balance with everyone making the same amount of money.
3: Yeah. So like, for example, like we'll get a sheet that shows our partial chorus operas, like Don Giovanni, for example, I'm not me and one other bass are the two guys that just aren't in that. I, but then I'll be in something else that they won't be in. Mm-hmm. But when you see that sheet at the beginning of the year, because they mail it to us over the summer and it's emailed to us too, it, it, let's say there's ten partial chorus operas, you're going to be in five because everybody gets five. It, like they they kind of do that. They break it down mm-hmm. like that. Right. Five.
1: Are you compensated per performance or is it a salary?
2: Um, we get a salary based on no shows up to four shows. Um. So zero through four shows that's the base pay and we get that 52 weeks out of the year everything else um, starting in, in the fall when we open the theater when we do rehearsals that's overtime and fifth performance is extra pay sixth performance is extra pay seventh performance is extra pay in and a so week, in, a in, given week. In, in a week in a given week and that's how the at the end of the year it always varies what your salary is going to be depending on what the what operas we're doing and what schedule we have
3: and that pre-season that we were talking about before, we're working mm-hmm. 27 hours a week, that's included in that base pay. That's not yeah. paid extra. That's, we're, we're just showing up for that.
1: How does it work when you have a chorus full yeah. of completely wonderful, <laughs> capable soloists that have to sing as a chorus? What about blend? That type of thing. That seems
4: to be Maestro Palumbo's main focus yeah. with us is to work on the blend, which changes from room to room interestingly enough, and once the orchestra's at he said, okay, Sopranos, you can sing a little bit more. And that's what he does. He goes out in the house and listens, and then we get a sheet of notes before every single time we step on that stage. Um, this didn't work last time. Sopranos, you were a little crazy in this passage. Basses, you were a little flat in this passage. And we just fix it per performance based on his feedback from the house.
1: All right, so we are almost right at time. So my final fun question is... If you, if it were up to you, to have any opera ever written put on the season just so you could sing in the chorus, what opera would you pick and why? I didn't really prep them for this one. Well, <laughs> does, it, does it have to exist? It doesn't have to exist. No, this is. It can if you, if it already exists. If there's one you've just always wanted to sing and it's okay. never come up, um, but if there's one that you imagine would be amazing, what would it be?
2: oh, this is going to be kind of cheesy. Um, But Porgy and Bess was one of the ones that I wanted to do. And believe it or not, I'm not allowed to sing in it. And that was the one that I really, 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 really would want to do. And I was going to beg the Chorus Master to let me be in it, but I changed my mind. That would be the one that I would want to be in.
3: I would say uh, it it would have nothing to do with the chorus. I just want to be out on stage to hear it. Andrea Chenier. But I'd also want to hear great soloists. So this would have to have taken place, I don't know who asked the question, like 50 years ago with Delmonico and like Bastianini. Oh, oh so I've got some good I, I, that, I have my, my preferences. Yeah, you're allowed to it. time travel in this
1: yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm tra- I'm,
3: Oh, yeah, you asked the question. I'm time traveling. It's Delmonico and Bastianini, and I'm just there singing like a few notes, but basically on stage listening.
4: Yeah, yeah that's, I would love to do Turandot with Ava Martone and Placido Domingo. All right. Wonderful
1: choices. All right. We are right at time. So please help me thank our wonderful Met Opera Chorus.
0: The beloved Met Opera Chorus plays a leading role in many of the operas across the season. So for more information about what's on stage and when, visit metopera.org. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.